Good afternoon and welcome to a special edition of the New Model Advisor podcast recorded from uh, Valentine's Day. Joined with me this week, we have a very special guest, Justin Urquhart-Stewart, co-founder and head of corporate development at 7IM. Hello. Thanks for joining us, Justin. Pleasure. We also have New Model Advisor Editor-in-Chief, William Robbins. Hello. Good to have you here, Will. Also a pleasure. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, We're going to be chatting this week all things DFMs, model portfolio, managed portfolio services, and what we've been seeing in the markets the last couple of weeks. But first, we're going to play this week's edition of Who's Hot and Who's Not. Uh, so, Will, who has been hot this week? Who's hot? Uh, the pension minister, in case who's called Guy Opperman. In case you've forgotten. In case you've forgotten, yeah. Uh, Why is he You hot? don't often see much of, of Guy, but he's bobbed over the, above the surface this week. Well, in honour of auto-enrolment, the success of auto-enrolment, which uh, he can claim for now while he's pensions minister, um, it's. I think it enrolled its one millionth member. One millionth employee. Employee. Well, employer. Sorry, one millionth employer. Which I you see that's staggering. I, yeah, I, sorry, I got that wrong, but it's staggering. Of course, uh, it's a lot of businesses um, and a lot of obviously therefore even more people enrolled. Yeah, so I think that's that's a success so far. I think they're right to celebrate it now. They've got contributions going up soon, which will be a test of the uh, of the auto enrollment system of the of of that piece of nudge economics, in fact, uh, when the nudge becomes a little bit more of a shove. <laughs> Can I add something there? It's just yeah. fascinating. It's great they're all getting into it. The problem is, none of them have been taught, in fact, Mr. Britain hasn't been taught, actually what's in a pension, how to run a pension, yeah. and what they're going to get out of it. So they're joining this thing, and it's fascinating. I was with a group of, um, of people who signed up the day before yesterday, and they all sort of went along with it all, and then actually sort of then, but didn't understand fully what it was. Half of them thought mm. it was some form of tax savers, saving service. God. Didn't realise it was their future. So that's 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 nudge theory for you. The, uh, the inertia relies on, does rely on benefits from total ignorance. Um, but uh, yeah. you know that's because that was you know that's why people didn't join in the first place, and it's not done anything to try and educate people because that's not how it works. So. Um, Richard Thaler won the uh, Nobel Prize last year. If it all falls apart, maybe he's the one to blame. Take it back. (laughs) (laughs) Great stuff, Will. And um, and who's not so hot this week? Who's not hot? I'm sad to say, Andy Briggs, uh, the the chief exec of uh, of Eva UK uh, Insurance, Um, because of the the problems, the gremlins with its re-platforming or its platform rollout. It's uh, switched the technology it was using for uh, for the platform and. uh, it, it's, had, it's had a few problems over the last two weeks. So it was it's delayed a day, I believe, when for, was it from the, they had sort of a few days of outage. Three and days of outage. Three yeah. days, and it was delayed a bit where they did some final checks. Okay, comes come, sort of expected. And then, then it went live. Maybe they should have keep ch- kept checking it, I yeah. um, I mean, is it, it's an invidious position to be in. Do you keep delaying it and make, you know, people uh, will obviously realise there's a problem uh, and, and, and stop people from using it? Or do you go live and, uh, with the risk of problems? And they had all, they've had a lot of problems with, I believe, advisors getting access to it, just, just yeah. basic stuff of logging on and using it. And, um, you know, it's, it's brutal these days, you know, take people's... Technology's got to be instant. It's got to work. Uh, you, you know, it's a big risk, a big problem if it doesn't. And uh, so, so it led him this week to issue, uh, or at the end of last week, I think, issue an apology. So emailed the advisors with an apology, which, uh, you know, uh, was probably the, what he needed to do. It's not, a, you know, I mean, I think probably the right bit of PR, but uh, 
Yes, yeah, so so had to had to apologise and, and and beg beg for mercy. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, Briggs, Briggs is not so so hot this week. Um, but advisor qualms about platforms, a uh, big issue, and one that's the, the segues nicely into the discussion we're going to have today about perhaps there's some advisor concerns or questions about DFMs and model portfolios. So nice. this has been outsourcing to DFMs has been big in the spotlight this year uh, so far and, and also last year. Um, we've, we've heard some, some, from some advisors who've kind of decided to move away from outsourcing. Um, and so, I mean, Justin, you know, this, this year, why should advisors keep faith with, with the outsource model and, and their DFM? Well, I think they're quite right to question it because what service do they want their clients to have? Yeah. What service do their clients actually want to have? And the trouble is there are so many variations. And the trouble is the more variations you have, that's fine, you've got a good choice. Then you've actually got to work out which one is suitable for your client. Can it be delivered in the right way? For example, who's actually going to speak to the end client? So if, you're, if you outsource to a full discretionary manager, the answer is the discretionary manager does yeah. it. But they can understand why a financial planner or advisor may say, well, hang on, that's my client that you're talking to. Um, so I want something which allows me to have the connection, but you can run the money. And you could do that as well. Um, and then people say, yes, but the full service is a bit too complicated. Let's make it simpler. So we then come up with models. And so you're going to have a model service. And then, again, are you connected to the cloud or not? And then is it an active model or a passive model? I mean, how many different combinations of these things do you actually want to have? Um, and so if you're confusing the, the, uh, the advisor talking to the client, for heaven's sake, don't tell the client because they have got a chance of understanding the variation. Um, but they've got to, that's where the, the, the advisors really got to be clear about what they want, what the service they can provide, and the quality of the discretionary manager at the end of it, whatever way they're providing it. Yeah. So, I mean, do you think we should, the DFMs should take a step back and, and just try and make things a bit simpler for their oh. clients and advisors? Yeah. I mean, first of all, the language is, is uh, ridiculous. You've got yeah. this alphabet soup of terms, uh, information, you know, investment management, management investment, models, and all sorts of things. So, A, try and structure it. And the trouble with the models issue is the regulator hasn't really caught up with this. Yeah. So, what is a model? defined. What goes into the model, there isn't actually a, a sort of a legal document as you would have with a fund. You'd have a prospectus for a fund, whereas a model portfolio could be well, sort of just about anything you want to have, um, bits and pieces in there. So it needs tightening up and making clear for people. Now, I think certain DFMs are being clear, but it needs to have some unification across the industry so that the providers understand what they're providing to the intermediaries, to the professional planners, and obviously then to the, the end client. And, of course, one of the main things, which is, of course, a hoary old chestnut, are the charges. The yes. people actually understand what the charges are, how much is actually being taken off, not just in the open charges, but all those nice little ones sucking stuff underneath. Yeah. Um, and uh, so, again, we need to be clear on that. Yeah, no, we did a big piece on uh, managed portfolio services yeah. last week in the mag. And some of the reactions so far from advisors we've, we've spoken to is that the charges, it's just, it's just a, a nightmare for them to, to kind of compare and, and figure out the charges. Yeah, I think what, I mean, one comment was that it was nice to see the charges set out. So there was, you, you know, what the, the, the recurring theme with this was that in some cases it's easier to find out than others. So the, the, the kind of the big conclusion was that not, not necessarily sort of real bad things happening at each provider of these services, but that they, there's not a lot of um, 
you know, it's very difficult to, co to compare them. It's not, you know, it's, it's different every time you look at it, which is not helpful uh, when you're buying on behalf of a client. Yeah. You know. And I'm uh, sorry to say, but there are some providers who I'm afraid are not necessarily telling the truth and being uh, about actually all the costs and charges. And it's often some of the, the subsidiary ones. If you're closing down an account or transferring money out, and you suddenly find, whoa, where did that fee come from? Yeah. Um, and I remember this from the old stockbroking days where you used to almost make up charges at any opportunity. You know, there's a custody charge, nominee charge, trading charge. Um, and uh, the one we had originally, it was started by Barclays, I have to say, the change of the name, was an inactivity fee, which I think was you know, spectacular. A fee for doing nothing. For doing nothing. <laughs> um, and uh, so, you know, we need to be clear and simple and let people be able to compare like with like. So you can actually say what, what the full charges are. And that's why you need clear definition of all those elements. Otherwise, people can merely say, oh, well, we included that inside it. The classic case would be things like um, the, the platform fees and charges. Mm. Um, it's, it's, it's not a matter of whether it's expensive or not. It's a matter of whether it's clear. Yeah. If you're getting really good service, a really good performance, you're paying more for it, then okay. But don't start telling porkies in terms of trying to make out your really, really good value when in fact actually it's all lurking underneath and charges come out later. Yeah, I mean, I think something we hear quite a lot is that um, some, some people think that DFMs make, uh, are made or designed for, for the IFA rather than the end client and, and that they kind of, they, they make a very complicated structure with these complicated charges that only an IFA could understand and as you say, they can barely, sometimes can barely understand that. I mean, do, would you think we should have the, the DFM needs to become more client-centric and think about the end client? With but absolutely, but the trouble is that that goes back again to a lot of the old stockbroking world where they, they weren't very client-centric uh, because the client gave the money to the stockbroker and the stockbroker then ran it. Yeah. Um, and so you didn't need to ask Tars some questions, you know, to get back in your box and uh, we'll tell you later. Yeah. Um, and uh, so that, that's where it comes from. So, but the, the ones who are on more on the ball are realising you've got to make something, not only does the intermediary understand it, but the client clearly understands understands as well. Um, and if you don't do that, you'll eventually find yourself losing business. I think, I think one thing that came, the comment made by uh, an advisor when I, we sort of looked at it again last week was, you know, he'd done a, he'd performed a sort of review of managed, specifically managed portfolio services because, you know, to do his independent thing, should we, should we be using them? And he just kind of, his conclusion was no, <laughs> at the end of the day, because he said, well, I'm, I'm can I, is this, is this offering something that I can't do myself? You know, and, and if I can do it myself, then I've got a lot more con control over it and, and, we, and there's a charges piece on that because of course, um, as someone else said, you know, the charges on this are about, you know, so they're about 1% and you're adding the advisor fee and so on. So he was just saying, look, can I do this myself? And, and, and therefore, is what I'm being sold um, more, you know, giving a level of sophistication that I just couldn't achieve. I think he, I think he said something like, he summed it up like, I think I've got the quote here that some, the, basically providers were just sort of polishing something up that was, was over, overly simple. So he said, some providers want to push a lower value product on higher value clients. They, they are trying to polish up a Mondeo into the BMW it never was. <laughs> and I just thought, <laughs> I think it's I think know, quite right. You can see how, how that, that is happening. If a, a good discretionary manager should be providing a first-rate service, using things quite often that the intermediary won't necessarily have access to, if they can do it and provide something which is better, um, then fine. But otherwise, an intermediary should sit there and say, hang on, most of this I can do myself. There are perfectly good platforms, mechanisms I can use to evaluate funds. Um, and if I can run a, a straightforward service myself, then why not? It's up to the business model. And it's a yeah. client segmentation thing as well. And I feel that, you know, the, the, a lot of the, certainly a lot of the advisors we speak to, and 
certainly of post-RDR trainers, they have, they have a clients of a certain amount of wealth and sophistication and their service is predicated on a certain level of, uh, of sort of, um, you know, tailoring. And uh, the, the feeling that some of these managed services would be better suited with a, a little bit of lower value, simpler, simpler need, sort of, sure. right, you, you fit this box, off you go, and that therefore it should be sold and priced accordingly. And it's they, just, they just, but, they, but the market, they, what they want, trying to sell this to, is, is wrong. It needs a different, a different level of, of, uh, of complexity or whatever. Uh, and then, of course, the advisors say, well, I can do that myself. So there's, there's an element of kind of segmentation of know your client, which is so important. And, and also know. what their business is, because, I mean, there are now lots of uh, very good planners who actually don't want to run money. As far as they're mm. concerned, they're fee-based. They're providing uh, the examples I'm thinking of. Those are providing almost baby family offices. Yeah. And so they're doing the tax, the organizing legal work, all the other facilities around it, and helping the family. But they don't actually want to run the money. Um, and if that's your model, then fine. Probably then your outsourcing is sensible. But otherwise, for an awful lot of them, they still want to be involved. And quite rightly, too. Why shouldn't they want to be involved? Um, particularly if they've been through the training and understanding of it. Um, the question is, to what extent do they want to go? That's the, it's getting to the right business model. Yeah. that they've got to work out. But I mean, I mean, Justin, we're looking at the last couple of weeks or the last week and a half, we've seen a lot of volatility in the markets. I mean, do you think this is where DFNs kind of come into their own as opposed to IFAs doing it themselves when, when the markets start to really go kind of up and down? Well, no, it's no guarantee of it. But first of all, good investing shouldn't be necessarily having to react to every single you know, little movement in the market. Yeah. Okay, we've had some volatility. And we're all surprised because we haven't had anything for a year. It's been peace and quiet for No news. Nothing. Um, I think last year there were seven days when we had a 1% movement. Yeah. And I was looking at the figures over the past um, no, seven or eight years. It's normally on average once a week. So suddenly had seven in an entire year. So people got used to us a complacent and nothing happened. So what good managers should be doing now should have actually have uh, portfolios which aren't necessarily going to stop any of this, but saying, look, when you're going to get the volatility, we can actually put in things in place to make sure it's not going to be that damaging. And so making sure that there are buffers in there to absorb some of that because you've got equities high, you've got bonds high. What else can you try and do to have things that aren't necessarily correlated? But also remember, for good long-term investors, the best thing they can try and do with most of these things is just carry on. Because where does their primary, what's the primary earning for them on their portfolio? The answer is compounding of dividends coming through. And you don't compound dividends by buying and selling the entire time. Yeah. Um, so it's that careful balance. Good portfolio construction for times like this, and then to making sure you're still taking a longer term view. The, the issue I thought advisors would be making more of a big, big deal about, which, which they haven't been, so maybe you, know, you can shed some on this, is just what we discovered about labelling. So we'd find that the the, the name of a particular um, uh, uh, portfolio uh, for you know funds and portfolios would be would be wouldn't match. So for example, we had the Quilterchevier Conservative and Quilterchevier Cautious in the Arc Cautious Cautious bucket. Because we used ARC as the kind of mm. benchmark yep. sort of thing. And so, you know, so but we, we're looking at it. So some of these would be in the wrong place. And so there's a bit of a strange thing. So actually, first of all, they didn't all conform to the, you know, to, to ARC, okay? Uh, and then they all had obviously different names, like balance, conservative. You know, then if you, you know, the Kultachevit balanced is in the growth portfolio here. And, you know, there's all sorts going on. Balance, conservative, cautious. It's the, yeah, there was a, seemed to be a bit of a labelling problem that if you go to a, a one of these NPS services and oh. say, well, I, you know, and you look, you've got your three buckets or, or whatever, what should go in where? 
um, they really just the, the label on the front of the tin wasn't really telling you what was going on. I just wondered what you felt about that, whether they needed to go down the route. Uh, as the thing happened, um, I think uh, Graham Bentley was pointing out that uh, with the the um, uh, the Investment Management Association uh, went down as dropping the names and just going for kind of the equity split yeah. instead. I mean, what, what do you well, think the, about the, that? Well, the, the problem is that would have changed quite a lot over the years because you go back 20 years ago, you know, a balanced portfolio would have been consisting far more equities and uh, you know, bonds and very little else. Mm. Then you end up with something which is probably more 60-40. But now you're in a position where you've got a lot of defensive portfolios which have probably got a lot of bonds in. Well, you've got the 10-year risk-free bond, which is actually quite risky. <laughs> so suddenly, an entire, a good proportion of that asset class is no longer as defensive as you originally thought it was. So it's not a matter of almost saying whether it's, uh, whether it's risky or not, but I think we need to be clear about people having a better idea what's inside it. Yeah. Um, and whether that's risky or not will depend on what the market's doing. So yes, it could be interesting to sit there and say, this is 60 60, 30, 10, or something like that, yeah. um, but giving people an idea. But it's going to be constantly changing, and particularly if you're dealing with a, a moment like this, because it is a rather strange moment. Here we are you know, at, the, at the other end of QE, where we're starting to actually withdraw in America, um, and so we've both got both major asset classes high, and you're not quite sure what's going to happen next. Um, so what was a traditional portfolio 10 years ago looks very different today. Yeah, that's interesting. The the end of QE, uh, Justin. I mean, I mean, do you think we've ever seen anything like that in the markets before? This we've kind never of seen this. No, I mean, you look around the world now. We've got um, you've got Japan. Basically, if it's not nailed down in Japan, the government buys it. <laughs> uh, there is no government bond market in Japan. It's the Japanese government. Japan, Japan, Japanese government are buying property. They're buying equities <laughs> on the Japanese market. Yeah, yeah. It's a weird market. It's a fixed market. So we haven't seen anything like that. The level of government support we've seen in the other major nations has meant it's a bit like scaffolding. Scaffolding was put up as QE to repair uh, the economies. So now, 10 years on, the economies may, be, may have been repaired. America is starting to take the scaffolding down. The question is, therefore, two things. One, by taking the scaffolding down, are you going to scare people because suddenly the support goes? And also by taking the scaffolding down, are those assets going to sustain there or the push that got them up there, which is the asset, which was the QE, is that actually going to mean it's going to start crumbling again? That's the bit we don't know. So America starts it, starts with withdrawal. We'll be and uh, Europe will be coming later with that, and heaven knows what's going to happen to Japan. Yeah. But you can see that with the rates rising, um, we move to the next st the, the next style of market, um, and so this is where you can see, hence the wobble last week. Um, effectively, what you've got uh, is the, the main wind stream, the jet stream, if you like, has, has moved. Um, and so now we're going to have a jet stream giving us a series of market fronts coming through, which is going to be a series of bits of volatility. It's a different market from what it was two months ago. Yeah. And, and just with the kind of the, the bond market at the moment, I mean, so you've got central, central banks, central banks selling off huge amounts of bonds, right, that they, they bought through quantitative easing. I mean, do you think there's going to be enough capacity for people to buy those bonds? Well, that, that's the issue. First of all, I suspect a lot of it will just be done by runoff. They'll just let it go. So they'll just mature and just don't replace them. And that, you're doing it quietly. If they do too much of it and they can't find buyers, that's when you end up with a sort of taper tantrum that we saw a couple of years back. People worried about this. Um, and so also, if you've got a period of rising uh, rates, rising yields, why would you want to buy, buy bonds with rising yields where your capital value is going to go down? Yeah. And that's, that's the fear. And of course, 
you know, we're in a position now where people would go back to your defensive portfolios with a lot of bonds in, and particularly for things like charities and trusts and personal injury, where they've almost got built-in losses now because of that. And so this is a, a very difficult situation for managers. Yeah, I think last, last week's podcast, we had uh, Frank Talbert, our head of invest, investment research, who kind of coined the phrase, we've got a spec- the spectre of inflation is upon us, yeah. borrowing a, a phrase from uh, Karl Marx there, I think. I mean, do you think that spectre is, 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 is rapidly approaching? Do you think we might start see, to see rates and rates of inflation kind of hitting 5%? Well, remember, all governments would love to have some inflation because it's a very good way of getting rid of debt. Yeah. You erode your way out of it. Uh, they don't admit it, of course, but they'd love to have a little bit more inflation. Um, but inflation where we are now, bear in mind, oil's gone up. Well, if you can see it's gone up. It's gone up 100%. <laughs> that's, that's inflationary. Um, and so you can start seeing this coming through. Now, we've had inflation figures this week in the UK. They weren't that strong. Food was coming down. Um, uh, but actually, what was interesting is to look inside. Some of the wage salary levels were starting to creep up. I have to say, not at the bottom end, at the top end. Um, but it'd be interesting to see, as we start seeing shortage of labour, whether actually start at last going to see maybe a squeeze and maybe more pay coming through. Yeah. So yes, inflation is there. And you do need some inflation. Because remember, only 18 months ago, people were sitting there wondering, are we turning Japanese? <laughs> are we going to have a long-term period of you know, uh, where there is actually deflation, um, effectively going through uh, you know, a very, very weak period and unable to get the economy going again? Japan's at last seeing some inflation. Not a huge amount, but from where they were before, it's quite a change. So yes, we are going to have to live with inflation, and portfolios should make sure they've got some inflation protection in them now. Yeah, and of course in the UK, (coughs) we're in a situation where we've been consciously uncoupled, uh, in the words of Mark Carney, from the rest of the world and from Europe because of Brexit. Mm. So do you think we're going to see a bit of a phony situation here the next year or so because because of Brexit means we're not going to be doing what Europe or America does exactly the same? It's a weird position. None of us know what Brexit is. The government don't even know what Brexit is. Basically, the nearest you can get to it is dog's Brexit. Um, And so a couple of things are happening. One, companies aren't investing. Uh, They'll invest short term, i.e. up to 12 months. But after that, to companies I have to run around the country, they're sort of saying, uh, anything over 12 months, I ain't doing it until you can tell me clearly actually what's going to happen here. Mm. Because that'll impact on currency, that'll impact on my cost of investment. Uh, so yes, we are in this very strange position. We want clarity, um, and I don't mean in a bottle. Uh, we want clarity to be able to make sure that actually we can get a reasonable idea. We can see what's going to happen in Europe, we can see what's going to happen in America. In this situation, the sales are flapping, we have no idea. So uh, ominous times, perhaps for, for the for the UK economy the next next year or so. Take back control, Jack. We're taking we're taking back control. Well, that's yeah. what Boris Johnson taking, is saying today. Yeah. He's saying he's he's refighting the the Brexit campaign uh, a year and a bit later after the referendum for some for some reason he's to saying, try and unite the country. He's saying don't. He's basically saying stop saying Ramona because it's re- it's an, it's starting to really great. That's basically his message. But the fact that he's saying yeah. that isn't really going to help any, anyone, yeah. is it? Is it? I don't, I don't yeah, know. yeah. He's trying to he's trying to be the kind of metropolitan. He's trying to sort of try and take the the metropolitan elite with him, um, and and try try and you know somehow present both sides as needed. There's a difference between starting to great and actually trying to be great. <laughs> uh, um, yeah. He's doing both, yeah. I think, he's trying to be great and failing, grating. and certainly grating on everybody's <laughs> nerves. But I think increasingly we are getting more people now very frustrated by what they see because they're beginning to, it takes a long time to understand all the layers of Brexit, um, beginning to really sit there and say, actually, is this, re- is this actually worth it? What do we actually vote for? Because they now realise they didn't really understand what they were voting for. Um, and so uh, it's, in my view, still not a done deal. I mean, advice, just to, well, I'll just add the sort of advisors view that we took at the beginning of the year, at our conference, you know, 
I think I sort of asked then, you know, do you want a second re referendum? So, um, and it was, you know, I thought, um, I was kind of going to be at this wrong, but I, th I, th I think that I was surprised how few wanted a second referendum. I think they wanted to. Yeah, I think most of them wanted just to get on with get it. Get on with it. It was quite split. It was quite split. There was a cheer from the back of the room for Brexit. Um, so, you know, it was, it was quite a split, but, it, you know, there was that sort of pragmatism after the referendum where people, Remainers, uh, Remainer advisors who I spoke to were saying, look, you know, it's done is done. I'm, you know, we're not going to be um, sore about this. It's, you know, let's just get on with it. And um, this, the reason the second referendum stuff is, is, is kicking on right now um, it, it's, I think it's to do with that uncertainty that there's a lot of people who've probably even forgotten how they voted. You know, it's sort of, well, not obviously not, but you know, there's a sort of, you know, that's kind of, you know, that's, that was 2016, around 20, 2018, a lot, lot has happened. A lot of things have changed. So, you know, pe voters recalibrate their views all the time, you know, as we saw in the run up to referendum elections. And I, and I think, you know, there are some who are sort of heavily wedded to either camp, but actually probably not as many as you think. And it's more of a case of, you know, actually, uh, pragmatism wins out. The economy wins out mm. all, all the time. Well, was a, uh, you know, a classic case when you go and say, talk to farmers, for example. Now, not the farmers voted to leave. Um, but now they're beginning to realise, actually, that, of course, the benefits they actually had from common agricultural policy were very significant indeed. And although the government said, we will replace that for a period of time, mm -hmm. um, you know, how long's that? And so a lot of them are now sort of starting to realise that, actually, I didn't realise how this was affecting me. So as soon as it comes back to affecting you as an individual or your business, that's when you start to, to question it. So yeah, I think it's still going to go back to Parliament anyway. And that, I suspect, whether you end up with another vote or not, to the country, you may well end up with a, obviously a significant vote in Parliament. Definitely. Last yeah. word, I think just, it's just, you know, whether it's not a kind of, they just want some some plan. It's just, it's just some, some clarity of what's going on. Again, I'm not, you know, what I'm saying is not from a sort of Remain point of view necessarily. It's just, just some sort of positive vision of what it will be like afterwards. Because I think people, you know, people will, okay there's a bit of a if the economy blips you know i think a lot of people are okay with that if they get what they want and they know where it's going but they don't know. know and they that yeah so they think you know a lot of you know some this might be contentious to say i mean dan, dan hannon said it recently the sort of people knew what the costs were and maybe they didn't they voted didn't. anyway but but i think that's fair enough that a lot of people you know some things were more important than just the next quarter or the next year yeah. maybe of economic figures the economy is really important in all elections, yes, it will be at the next general election. But for this issue right now, I think people will say, what's the plan? Okay, and how long will we have to suffer any bad things before it gets better? To get what we want. It's a lack of credible leadership, isn't it? You look at our current leaders, you already mentioned Mr. Johnson, and he will come out and say these things, but I'm afraid we get most people turning around saying, I, I don't believe you. Uh, or I don't trust you, and you just look around the entire uh, you know, spectrum of politicians, and most of them you just go, oh, I, I'm really not too sure I want to follow any of them. <laughs> so, um, Jack, I think in the last few weeks you've been playing Tweet of the Week. We have, yes, we've started to. What have you seen this week? So this week, the best, the best of Twitter comes from uh, one um, just Urquhart Stewart, oh. uh, and the tweet was. I'm not sure. The, the tweet was, fundamentally, the market jet stream has changed. Thus, get used to more weather fronts buffeting the indices. Underlying economic, economies still fine. Economies and markets do not usually walk in step. And this was a tweet that was picked up by the Guardian live blog last really? week. Yes. Did you not notice that, Justin? No, I didn't. No. That's your target audience, Justin, <laughs> surely. Yeah, yeah. You should be aiming for it. Didn't see that. Yeah. 
Uh, so yeah, that was uh, well, congratulations getting on the, on the Guardian Live blog. It's always a good achievement. What was the worst social media? The bit worst social media was um, the Department from Work and Pensions press office. Today is Valentine's Day. They they tweeted the following: um, claiming to be living alone is one of the most common types of benefit fraud. Don't ruin hashtag Valentine's Day by failing to declare your true circumstances with a nice picture of a heart and Valentine's Day. So they were <laughs> using the um, the jovial uh, and and kind of <laughs> and happy occasion of, of Valentine's, of Valentine's Day, Day to remind the public about the dangers of, of benefit benefit so, fraud. Um, uh, uh, maybe a little bit insensitive there, people people who live alone and, and for the 99.9% really? yeah. <laughs> of the population who don't commit any benefit fraud. But um, yeah, they, there you go, so. Roses are red, violets are blue, don't lie on your benefits form, we'll be watching you. <laughs> sort of what they're going for there. That was good. No, that's very impressive. Off, 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 I was off the cuff as well. I was off the cuff, right? So yeah, I think that's all we've got time for this week. Uh, thanks everyone for listening though. Um, it's been great. Uh, remember everyone to subscribe on iTunes at, at New Model Advisor Podcast by CityWire. Uh, and also remember to tweet us at New Model Advisor uh, all your thoughts and opinions uh, and hopefully get next week's Tweet of the Week. Um, so thank you very much, everyone. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you, Jack. Bye, guys. Bye-bye.